Before we turn to God's Word, uh, this morning I was supposed to have spoken about two books, and because I didn't do that, I've decided to pay for my sins, so I'll speak on four, so that when I go to sleep tonight, I know that all my debts have been paid for. It often happens back home in Zambia, the elders tell me one or two things I need to speak about when I get to the pulpit. And I only remember after the final amen at the end of my sermon that I didn't say anything about it. And the same thing has happened here. So when I tell them this time, they will really believe me that it's not deliberate. Um, there are quite a number of books in the bookshop, and all I've done is picked on four for different reasons, but they are all around the subject of the gospel, and more specifically to do with the work of evangelism, which is the sharing of the gospel. Today's evangelism is an old, old book. I must have read it probably in 1985. So that's probably some, some 30 years ago. And it's entitled, Today's Evangelism, Its Message and Methods. It was written within the context of uh, the Southern Baptist uh, denomination in the USA with its sort of factory-made process of producing converts. And the whole idea behind it is to take us back to the Bible that we may see how evangelism was being done biblically and then use that as a kind of uh, stethoscope onto today's evangelism so that we can see whether we are doing it in a God-glorifying way. Another book that I read more or less at the same time uh, 30 years ago is God-Centered Evangelism by Arabi Kuyper. And all this one does again is not so much to concentrate on the message and methods, but to give the theological foundation for evangelism so that we might do it with God in mind rather than simply wanting numbers and numbers and numbers. And I find reading a book like this a real encouragement. I mean, each chapter is God and something, God and something. Just peeping at the top of it, uh, of each page, there's God and the scope of evangelism, God and the urgency of evangelism, God and the motive of evangelism, God and the approach of evangelism, and so on. So it sort of puts the basis of God in all the evangelistic work that we are doing. Um, these are people that have since gone on to glory, but I have two books of those that are still alive. One is a friend by the name of uh, Paul Washer. Uh, Paul had been preaching a number of messages quite regularly uh, on the whole issue of the gospel and came to a point where the demand on those messages made him feel that he should put them into print. And consequently, when he got everything ready and took them to the publishers, uh, Reformation Heritage Books, they suggested that instead of it being one book, it should be a series of three books. And so I think all three are out by now. I only stumbled across one in the bookshop entitled The Gospel's Power and Message. It's really something that's flowing out of a person's full heart rather than an academician sitting down and making sure that he's crossing all his T's 
and dotting his eyes uh, in a very sort of uh, uh, special way. So if you want your heart enlarged on this subject, that's uh, where you go. And I'm sure most of you will know uh, Paul Washer by now. Another uh, book that I trust a lot of you will know, and I hope some of you have read, is Let the Nations Be Glad. Uh, my recent studies were in churches, well, in missions, closely related to church history. And this book, uh, I began to understand why it is a classic already. Uh, it's, it's a book that not only brings a fresh perspective to missions, but argues in a way that we should all say, I mean, that's obvious, how did we miss it? And it's the fact that sin produces misery, holiness produces happiness, and that the people that are sitting in, in, in darkness have seen a great light, those who are in a period of misery and sorrow, the joy comes to them through the gospel. And that's what missions does. It brings people to God that in God they might find the fountain of all that is life with a capital L. So it's all about God again and the supremacy of God in missions is what it's about. If you haven't read it, I commend it to you, hoping and praying that it will produce the kind of change that we need to see in today's generation, an enthusiasm for missions, not simply because people are perishing, but because God seeks to be glorified through the spread of the gospel. So some books that are there, and please make your way there when you find time to help yourself to some of these books. Please turn with me then to First Timothy and uh, chapter 1, First Timothy and chapter 1. We'll read from verse 12 to verse 17, though the message that I will be preaching here will be based on verse 15. First Timothy chapter 1, beginning with verse 12. I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service, though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent. But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving full acceptance. That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom... I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the king of the ages, immortal, 
invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. You will notice from your schedules, if you have seen one, uh, that the subject that I'm dealing with this evening is basically the, the gospel that truly saves. The gospel that truly saves. In putting it that way, it is because we are seeking to contrast it with what we were hearing earlier on from Galatians 1, and that is the gospel, which is no gospel at all. And in our own day, the, the, the form that that has taken to a large extent is what has been popularly dubbed the prosperity gospel. In other words, it is some good news that is being peddled under the name of Christianity that is promising people that if they, as it were, vote for Jesus, they will have fat bank accounts, healthy bodies, and all that they've ever dreamt for on earth. And we continue hearing that literally every day and everywhere. And soon it's taking the form of the gospel and crowding out, clouding over that which has been preached through Bible times, that which has been preached through the ages all the way to where we are today. So we are seeking to contrast the two. Here is the gospel that truly saves. And in order to just help us, uh, what I am doing tonight is largely the positive message. I'm seeking to preach tonight the, that which we ought to be preaching to the world, sharing with the world. And I trust that you will appreciate it by the time I come to the end. But we also have the reality of the false gospel around us. And consequently, at least two to three times, I will draw your attention to Jeremiah and chapter 23. So for those of you who might not be very quick at crossing from the, old, the New Testament to the Old, uh, turn there now and put something there, your finger or your pen, or fold the page there or something, because we'll go there a few times as I speak. One of the greatest wonders of the world has been the spread of the Christian faith. If you've never thought about it, think about it now. That without guns, without political pressure, the Christian faith has spread across the globe and literally bringing people of all kinds, of all nations, of all races, of all cultures, together as one people under the Lord Jesus Christ. Many other movements have begun, but in due season have ground to a halt. You will remember, for instance, Gamaliel in Acts chapter 5, anticipating that this might happen, 
to the people of the way. Yes, a wise man in the worldly sense of the word. But what he was thinking would happen did not happen. Were he to rise from the dead today and see what I am seeing with my own eyes, he probably would collapse immediately after that, realizing that what he thought would happen has not happened. There are many other religions around the world, and many of them are parochial. They tend to, to simply want to, to keep their own. They are special, so they think, and keep everybody else on the outside. The Christian faith has been marching across history, marching from coast to coast, and in due season, bringing the nations of the world under its wings. And that, mind you, at the expense of many, many lives of those that have taken this message. Many of them have paid the ultimate price, and that is death. In doing research in Baptist work, not too long ago, I spent a bit of time at the graveyard for the first Baptist mission that came into our part of the world. And as I was looking at the tombstones, it was amazing that you'd have tombstones that speak about a person arriving and within a year he has died. And before that someone else arrives and within two years he has died. And yet another one comes up, within three years he has died. And you're asking yourself the question, well then why were so many others still coming? When clearly death is staring them in the face. And that's the question that we ought to answer tonight. It seems to me that the answer lies in verse 15 of our text. And it is the fact that the Christian faith, the Christian church, has the best news in the world. We have the best news in the entire universe. And it is captured in the words of the Apostle Paul when he says that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And that's the reason why the Christian message is referred to as the gospel. Gospel is simply good news. And that's what we declare. We've got good news, the best news. And consequently, as you very well know, you don't keep good news to yourself. In fact, you can't keep good news to yourself. You invariably want to share it. And that's what the Christian church has been doing there for across the ages. Engrossed with this reality that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners they have wanted the whole universe to know about this reality. No doubt about it, this is what made the Apostle Paul such a bowl of energy in his own days, crossing land and sea with this message, despite all the suffering that he was going through as he lists for us in um, 2 Corinthians chapter 11, he still continued going from place to place until he breathed his last 
Why? It's because of what he says here. He was overwhelmed with this reality that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners and he says of whom I am the chief, the worst. If he could save me, there is hope for everybody. The Apostle Paul was obviously saying here as he was writing to, to Timothy, the young man that had groomed over time into a disciple of Jesus Christ, into a preacher of the gospel, and in due season led him to work in the church in Ephesus to continue building that work, building it around the same good news, the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Very well then, what is its content? What is it that makes this message the best message of the universe? Why is it that this message should be the one and the only one that truly saves? Three answers, and they are all found in this text. First of all, it is in the identity of the one who saves. The identity of the one who saves. The Apostle Paul, writing to Timothy, identified the Savior as Christ Jesus. He wrote, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. In fact, Jesus Christ himself, when he came into the world, made it abundantly clear that he and he alone is the Savior. He said, I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. I'm not one among many saviors. I'm not the best savior. I am the only savior. And anyone who claims to be another door leading to heaven is simply misguiding you. He is a door, a back door, leading into the flames of hell. And what a claim this is. It's a stupendous claim, primarily because he who made this claim was, was the, the, the lowliest of all in terms of humility. He was the meek, and lowly one. He's one that continually counseled against pride. And yet he is the one who stands and says, I'm the only savior. Anybody who tries any other way will get lost. There's only one way to God, and it is through me. Well, when you read your Old Testament, it was constantly bringing data together that has only been satisfied in the person of Jesus Christ. To begin with, the Psalms. You have Psalm 2. You have Psalm 45, in which he is specifically designated as the unique Son of God. But when you make your way backwards to Genesis chapter 49, 
we are told there that he who was to come as the savior of the world would be born from the tribe of Judah in the nation of Israel. We go on to read in Isaiah chapter 7 and Micah chapter 5 that he who would come as the savior of the world would be born of a virgin in Bethlehem. We go on to read in Amos chapter 2 that he was going to grow up in Nazareth. And then finally, in Isaiah chapter 53, we are told that he would do many miraculous feats, he would suffer terribly, he would die and rise again from the dead. Here's my question. Which other human being since the dawn of history satisfies this collective description. No one else but Jesus of Nazareth. Christ Jesus who came into the world to save sinners. No wonder then that by the time he came on the scene and did all that he did and said all that he said and taught all that he taught, the gospel writers recording his life again and again would say this took place to fulfill what was said about him by the prophet. Again and again they saw that his life was but fulfilling the writings of all the scriptures. In fact, the Lord Jesus Christ himself on one occasion rebuked his disciples towards the end of his life. He said to them, why are you so blind? Why are you so dull, failing to believe all that the scriptures have written about me? And he opened their eyes so that they could see that book after book in the Old Testament was pointing to this one figure, Jesus Christ, who was to come into the world to save sinners. Now friends, that immediately tells you that there, there, there is an incredible story that is on our hands. No one else has had so many people over a thousand years writing consistently about him and when he comes on the scene he fulfills all these writings. Nobody. And don't tell me it is nothing but some coincidence of history. Come on. Give me another coincidence like before I can believe you. You see, according to the Bible, this Jesus, this person that is being spoken about here is the Son of God. In fact, he is God the Son. And that's the reason why at the beginning of John and chapter 1, this is what John writes. John and chapter 1. He says there, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, 
and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. We have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son of the Father, full of grace and truth. From verse 3, I jumped to verse 14. That's what you have there. And when the Jehovah's Witnesses in their New World Translation attempt to somehow squeeze in a God instead of God, clearly they are shooting themselves in the foot. As one young man mentioned to me very clearly this, just this morning, the same Bible that says, in the first commandment, you shall have no other gods besides me. How can God be saying that? And then in this book, we are supposed to be rejoicing in the fact that there is God and a God, and we relate to them so well. Clearly, we would be guilty of idolatry and the judgment. This is God himself coming down to us. And that's why he is referred to in the Old Testament scriptures as Emmanuel, God with us. Or as it is put in Isaiah chapter 9, he is that child, that son who is to be born, who is to be called Wonderful Counselor. Almighty God, everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. Friends, we're talking about God visiting us. God visiting us. I want to assure you that that is indeed good news. Just find out from any community when the president of a country visits them. If you go there a week later, you know what they're talking about? The president who came. Go there a month later, the president was here. Do you know that? <laughs> go there a year later, you know what happened in August? The president came. Now this is not the president. This is the president of presidents, the king of kings, the lord of all lords. He came in order to save. Friends, you cannot keep Christians quiet concerning that reality. And in Jeremiah chapter 23, where I said we should keep a finger, Jeremiah 23, he is spoken of as the righteous branch who is going to come. Jeremiah 23. I'll begin from verse 5. This is after God speaks about the fact that he's very unhappy with the shepherds who are currently there who are not doing his people 
any good whatsoever. Then he says in verse 5, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch. Emphasize righteous. And he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved. You will notice that because that is crucial. And Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called the Lord our righteousness. Why is this good news to the people of Israel in Jeremiah's day? Why is this good news in the days when Paul the apostle lived and consequently wrote to Timothy? Why is this glorious news for us 2,000 years later? Well, it's because when you speak about God, you are speaking about omnipotence. You're speaking about the all-powerful one. In other words, it doesn't matter how big your sin is. Here is one who is powerful enough to come in and undo that sin. He is God himself. And if you ever are in doubt with his ability, I urge you to simply go out at night when you have a clear sky, a cloudless sky. Look at those stars in their thousands strewn right across the sky. And ask yourself the question, who put them there? And when you've got the answer, say to yourself, he's the one who wants to fix my heart. I hope you will be convinced that there is no doubt he can deal with this little worm of the earth called me. You see, one of the reasons why we are concerned with this false gospel that is doing its rounds is because of this same point. They are not pointing people to Jesus Christ. Instead, you know where they are pointing them? To themselves. Whatever your issue is, come. I will deal with it. He is the anointed one, according to the Bible. You know who the anointed ones are today? It's these feeble creatures of dust going around misleading the public. They are supposed to be anointed. Anointed. That's the key word, anointed. And in the end, they are leaving behind so many disillusioned people. When the one that Paul was excited about, the one that a previous generation upon generation had been excited about is Emmanuel, Jesus. And he is the one to whom we ought to be pointing everybody. Not to ourselves, 
We are creatures of dust. Tomorrow we will be gone. But when men and women come to the Savior, he will see them through the doors of death, through those barriers to do with heaven, into heaven itself. Well, that's the first source of excitement. It is the person whom we declare. It is God the Son who has come into the world to save. The second part that we notice from this text back to 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15, that makes the Christian message the best news of the universe that convinces us that here is a message that truly saves, is the interest of the Savior. Not just his identity, but what or whom he is particularly interested in. The text that we read says, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. In terms of emphasis, or just the way in which the actual Greek is written, it is written thus, Christ Jesus came into the world, sinners to save. Sinners to save. That's where the emphasis is. It is with sinners. Now friends, that should surprise us. It should surprise us because light and darkness don't mix. Our consciences tell us that God is holy. God hates sin. And how, therefore, a God who is holy and hates sin with perfect hatred should come down looking for sinners. Our minds tell us it's like a policeman looking for lawbreakers. You go and hide when he shows up. That's what we think. Rather than fraternizing with sinners. And that's the reason why the Pharisees had problems understanding Jesus, what he was doing relative to his claims. If he's claiming to be God, how come he's spending so much time with tax collectors and sinners? How? How does he allow a prostitute to touch him? How? It doesn't square. He must be a fool teacher. He must be pretending he cannot be. And that's the reason why the Lord Jesus Christ in due season gave us those three parables that are written in Luke chapter 15. It was primarily because he was seeking to explain the heart of God towards sinners in this saving expedition. The Pharisees were murmuring when they saw him sitting around with tax collectors and sinners. And so he first of all tells them the story concerning uh, the parable of uh, the lost sheep. 
And there he speaks about a, a, a shepherd who, who leaves behind 99 sheep to go and look for one that had strayed. One. Leaving behind 99. Also spoke about a woman that, that lost a coin and, and consequently again went out of her way, turning her home upside down to, to find this missing coin. Now, in our day and age, you probably won't do that because, you know, your coins are not, not worth looking for. <laughs> but you have to understand that in those days, they did not have paper currency, paper denominations. So the, the, the finances were in these same coins that Jesus would take and use as an illustration and say, okay, whose face is on this? And when they say Caesar, it says, yes, then give to Caesar what is his and give to God what is his. So whatever this coin was worth, it must have been worth a lot. And consequently, she was looking for it. But finally gave the, the story of the prodigal son. And that got home finally. Because, you see, uh, the lost ship was not malicious. The, the lost coin was not malicious. But, but the lost son was malicious. He was tired of having his father alive. He wanted money instead of his dad. And when he got the father's wealth, he shot off and went and, and squandered it in riotous living with prostitutes. That which his dad had worked for for a lifetime, he blew in a very short time. And now he comes back home. Obviously, you know what's going to happen. As soon as the father sees him, he'll call one of the servants and say, just go tell him to go back. Look at him, dirty. Where has he taken my money? Tell him I don't want to see him. Come on, get out. That's what he expects. But no, friends. The father sees a figure that looks like his son, limping along, dirty, coming home, initially a little unsure, but finally thinking this must be him. Draws a little closer, draws a little closer, and the moment he sees it's my son, he forgets. He is near retirement or past retirement and runs to his son. Forgets that his robes are clean, he hugs him. Forgets that this guy's been playing with pigs, he kisses him with all the dirt that's there. And as everybody comes in from every corner of the compound, he begins to issue out all kinds of commands. Bring the best robe. Put it on him, sandals for his feet, a ring on his finger. That fattened calf, slaughter it. Let's celebrate. That's the attitude. That's the attitude of this God. And that's why it's good news. Because, humanly speaking, it's incredible. We all know what happens. When parents come from work, and the kids are innocent. You know what happens? 
They come out of the home. <laughs> Hugging dad, mom, how was work? And hoping some chocolate will come out of the briefcase. <laughs> but I'm also sure you know, at least those of you who are parents, when you know that something has gone wrong. You arrive home and it's quiet. <laughs> you enter the lounge, the sitting room, still quiet. You know. And you're asking yourself the question, what have they damaged this time? So this should surprise us. That he who is the offended God, who knows what we have done, should be the one to come out looking for the scoundrels. Looking for the culprits. Not to punish them, but in order to save. In order to save. Why is that? It's because we speak about a God who is not just holy and just, but is also a God of love, a God of mercy, a God of grace. That's the God we speak about. And hence the Apostle Paul rejoices in this fact. He says there in verse 16, but I received Mercy. That's what I received. Mercy. Goes on to say they, for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience. Perfect patience. That's the kind of God who is there. A God who wants to have mercy on the chief of sinners in order to encourage the lesser sinners to come to him. To come to him. He has come to seek and to save that which is lost. And in case you're still thinking that you are beyond the pale, the, the boundaries of God's love, Paul describes himself in this passage. He says earlier on, in verse 13, that though formerly I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent opponent. That's what he was. He wanted to ensure that Christians were killed, slaughtered like animals. Get rid of them. Rid the earth of them together with their Jesus. Called him all kinds of names until his conversion and he discovered that in fact he was blaspheming because the one he was calling all kinds of unprintables is God himself. God himself. And perhaps that's your problem. It is the fact that you... You recognize that you've sinned against God. And consequently, you are running away from him. Oh, friend, I want to tell you, he actually came for you. 
He came for you. He is a God of mercy. He is a God who comes to change your situation, to change your circumstances, that you might rejoice in his great salvation. That is what he has come to do. And one of the reasons why we must be very concerned with the so-called prosperity gospel is that it doesn't touch these issues. It doesn't deal with the fact that men are sinners who need salvation. So they should be pointed to, to a savior who has come primarily because he wants to change their situation from sin to salvation and holiness. But rather it's a message that is saying, are you sick? Well, you get healed. Are you failing to find a husband? Well, we'll give you one. Is it a job? Come, we'll give you the job. And on and on and on it goes. And sin is hardly mentioned. No wonder such places are full to overflowing. It is because it is a message that ultimately is simply tickling people while they continue their journey to the grave and to hell. Friends, we must be concerned about that. The gospel is for sinners. Being confronted with the fact that they are sinners. And yet being told, Jesus, the Son of God, has come for you. For you. To address the issue of your sin. Well, let me hurry on to the third aspect of this good, good news. It's not just the identity of the Savior. It's not only the interest of the Savior. But thirdly and lastly, it is the intervention of the Savior. The intervention of the Savior. The Apostle Paul calls it Christ Jesus came into the world sinners to save. Sinners to save. Now you'll agree with me, friends, that when you think about salvation, even in the ordinary context, you're normally thinking about people who are unable to help themselves. They are not able to do anything for themselves. So they are at the mercy of, of someone else. If I was crossing a river, or you were crossing a river, and you could actually swim right across it, and then I jumped in to come alongside you and help you to the very end, you won't get to the other side and say, who is it who saved me? You'd be asking the question, who is it that we were enjoying swimming with? That's the way you speak. But if halfway across the river you run out of strength, and you know I've had it, before you know it, you even drank three or four cups of water. You're beginning to 
to black out. And you even say your final prayer. Because you know that the next time I am conscious, I'll be looking into the face of my maker. And then the next time you are conscious, you're looking into the faces of friends. You're still on earth. I know the question you ask. Who saved me? Who rescued me? Because on my own, I would not be here. I would not be here. Well, friends, that's the picture that we have here. It is a picture of a team of commandos who have come deep into enemy territory to rescue hostages. Or a helicopter with a team of lifeguards that goes into the high seas to save individuals whose ship has sunk. It is a picture of the United Nations plane that goes into a famine-stricken region of the world to deliver food and basic medical supplies to those who are starving to death. In each case, they cannot do anything for themselves. They are utterly at the mercy of the one who comes to rescue. Well, you see, when we are speaking about sinners, that's exactly what we're talking about. We have a twofold problem that we can do absolutely nothing about. Nothing. One is our guilt of sin. That guilt is one we are born with. When our foreparents, Adam and Eve, sinned against God, they became guilty, and because they were our federal heads, at least primarily in Adam, that guilt has come down the ladder of posterity up to us. And when we have sinned against God, we've only made the situation worse. And there's nothing we can do in and of ourselves about that guilt. You cannot undo guilt. You can't. You must pay for it. Ask any judge. They will tell you, you can't undo a guilt. You must pay for it. And the only payment that God can accept is quenching the flames of hell. Because it's his law, that infinite law of an infinite God that has been broken. That's the first. The second difficulty and impossibility is the changing of our natures. The changing of our natures. You see, when Adam and Eve sinned against God, they were not just guilty of sin, they became defiled by sin. Sin polluted every faculty of their beings. And hence you can see that their first children who were born Cain and Abel, one immediately murdered the other. And that's history that we are in. Marriages falling apart. Family life falling apart. Society on each other's throats. And everything else. Thefts. Lies. And 
everything else that we've come to know around us. Why? Often people ask, why did he do this? Why do people do things like that? Well, simple. The heart is polluted. It is sinful. And as Charles Pigeon once said, if God was to ever allow thieves to enter heaven, they'll soon be picking the pockets of angels. <laughs> because it's their nature. They're defiled. I'm told after the service, someone corrected him and said, angels don't have pockets. So the following weekend, he came and apologized for that and said they would be stealing the wings of angels. <laughs> the feathers. So the angel wants to fly and falls down. What has happened? The guy has, Anyway, we don't know about all that. But the, the, the point is, you know, going into heaven doesn't change you. And it's something you cannot do anything about. It's easier for you to lift yourself from your shoelaces than for you to change your own heart. But that's what Jesus Christ came to do as the Savior. He did two things. The first was his death on the cross. Having come into this world through the Virgin Mary, having come into this world through a direct act of the Holy Spirit, he was born holy. He lived a perfectly holy life. Never did he do anything sinful. Never did he think anything evil. Never did he say anything wrong. Not even in the intentions of his heart. God could say of him, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. He could look all his enemies in the face and say, which one of you accuses me of wrong? Tell me. This innocent, perfect, unblemished Lamb of God is the one who finally went to the cross. How could the cross, death, lay claim on one who had no sin when death is the wages of sin? There's only one answer. He took our place. He took our place. He set aside that righteousness. Remember who he is? The Lord, our righteousness. According to Jeremiah, he set aside that righteousness and instead took upon himself our guilt. And so in that glorious act of substitution, which all of us would be able to easily understand, Jesus paid the debt. The righteous for the unrighteous to bring us to God. What about the defilement of sin? When he rose again from the dead, he went to heaven. And from heaven received the blessed Holy Spirit, whom he sent into the world 
in order that he might change our hearts and enable us to live a life that was previously completely impossible. And that's what happens when you become a Christian. You are changed from the inside out. The things you hated before to do with righteousness and holiness are the things you now love. The things you once loved, sin and wickedness and evil, self-indulgence in all kinds of passions, you now despise altogether. It's the Holy Spirit who has brought about that change in God's great saving work through the Lord Jesus Christ. That's how we know that we are saved. The great change. The great change. The great change. One of the reasons why Back to Jeremiah 23 for the last time. One of the reasons why I'm very concerned about the proliferation of false teachers, false prophets, is exactly at this point. First of all, they themselves are full of scandals. Scandals that show that that moral transformation has not happened yet. And that's what Jeremiah was speaking about. I I will um, begin from verse 12 of this chapter. There's a lot we could have seen. In fact, I'll just go up a little bit more and begin with verse 11. This is what Jeremiah says concerning these lying prophets, as he calls them. We read these words, both prophet and priest are ungodly. Even in my house, I have found they are evil. They take the vulnerable women into the house of God, so to speak, and commit adulteries there. We read in verse 12, therefore their way shall be to them like slippery paths in the darkness, into which they shall be driven and fall. And it's happening all over the place. Verse 14. But in the prophets of Jerusalem, I have, I have seen a horrible thing. They commit adultery and walk in lies. They strengthen the hands of evildoers so that no one turns from his evil. All of them have become like Sodom to me and its inhabitants like Gomorrah. It's a stench in the nostril of God. The flock know what they are doing. They know it. Because they are sleeping with the women in the very churches. They know it. There was a news piece in a newspaper back home where this man's wife was now taking him to court for divorce because he had impregnated 10 women in the church. And there was even a photo showing the women. And he still has the audacity to claim 
that is a servant of the Lord coming to teach you how you can be saved. Saved from what? Physician, heal yourself first. But also, it's the fact that they are not challenging the people that for you to know the pleasure of God over your life, you must be holy. They pronounce blessings on everybody. Anybody. I decree on you, all your enemies who have nothing to do with you this year. Amen. 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 Come on. What kind of life are these people living? And that's what you find in verse 18, rather verse 16 and verse 17. This is another thing that God is angry about. Listen to this. Verse 16. Thus says the Lord of hosts, do not listen to the words of the prophets who prophesied to you, filling you with vain hopes. They speak visions of their own minds, not from the mouth of the Lord. They say continually to those who despise the word of the Lord, it shall be well with you. And to everyone who stubbornly follows his own heart, they say, no disaster shall come upon you. That's what we are hearing every day. On Facebook, all they do is they just say, this is going to be a blessing if you type amen at the bottom. <laughs> and 10,000 amens roll out. Now, come on. That's not the intervention of the Savior. He comes to change the lives of sinners. To enable them to live a life that was previously impossible. A holy life by the omnipotent power of the Spirit of the living God. That's what he comes to do. Friends, that's the good news. It's the only good news in the universe. It is news that goes to people whose consciences are screaming at them, guilty, guilty, guilty. You deserve to go to hell. For a moment they want to like little children in the house to run and, and, and hide under the, the, their beds when daddy's coming home. But by the working of the Spirit, they hear the good news. He has come to save the lost. And consequently, they cry to him. They cry to him. Just as I am, without one plea, but that thy blood was shed for me. And that thou bidst me come to thee. O Lamb of God, I come. I come. Thousands upon thousands, 10,000 times 10,000, millions upon millions have been saved this way. Friends, this is the gospel that truly says anything else is a back door into hell. Don't go there. 
for the love of your own soul, don't go there. The message that truly saves points you to Jesus Christ and him alone. The message that really saves stops you from being a hypocrite. You come to that Jesus just as you are a sinner deserving hell. The message that truly saves points not to what you do, but to what he has done in his intervention. He has paid the price for sin. He has sent his spirit to change, to transform you, and to come and live inside of you. If that's the message you're listening to, yes, that's the message that takes you to heaven. Anything else, it doesn't matter who is giving it. Even if, to borrow the words of the Apostle Paul, even if it's an angel from heaven, let him be accursed. It's a soul-damning message. Don't listen to it. The message that saves is this. Christ Jesus came into the world, sinners to save. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, thank you that we are recipients of this glorious message. And oh, how can we keep quiet when we have the best news in the universe? No doubt about it, angels that know something of who you are in all your holiness, majesty, Sovereignty and love would wish they had the privilege that we have not only to experience grace, but to share it with a dying world. Lord, we can well understand why generations of missionaries have risked life and limb for this message. We can well understand why it is the engine that drives the missionary enterprise. God glorified in the salvation of his son. O oh God of heaven, as men and women seek to pollute this message, seek to replace it with a message which is nothing but pebbles and dust in the mouths of the hearers. Help us not to keep quiet. Not simply to point them out to be wrong, but help us to proclaim this gospel, the gospel that truly saves. O oh Lord, may a generation yet unborn one day, look back to our days and bless your holy name because we would have laid a solid foundation with this message and that they would have been saved because they found this message far and wide. Help us that end, Lord, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.